Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Bitcoin values peaked yesterday at more than $9,900 per coin, just caressing the $10,000 mark. In March of 2010, one Bitcoin was worth three thousandth of a dollar. An investment of 30 cents seven years ago would yield a return of nearly $1 million today. Crypto coins like Bitcoin are a form of digital currency used for peer-to-peer monetary transactions that take place online. But surprisingly enough, well, maybe surprisingly to a lot of people, even though these transactions take place online, they were introduced all the way back in 1981, before anyone really knew what online meant. We're going to be talking about Bitcoins, uh, crypto coins, uh, a lot of other uh, currencies, digital currencies today with Dr. Dmitry Khrushchevsky, Assistant Professor of Economics at Elizabethtown College. Dr. Khrushchevsky, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. It's good to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. I have to say that when I saw that figure earlier this week that Bitcoins were gaining in value close to $10,000 per Bitcoin, and then seeing that uh, it was three thousandth of a penny back in uh, 2010, it's like shocking that how could something, anything, increase in that kind of value over that short a period of time? How did it happen? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. Um, well, as most big things were small at some point, so was Bitcoin. It um, was created initially in 2008. Not even created, but the idea of it was put out in 2008. Satoshi Nakamoto, a famous uh, creator of Bitcoin, proposed a, a Bitcoin as a way to have a peer-to-peer cash transfer. It has a, it had a small following since, and and it in recent years has been taken up by uh, big investors, by uh, just people wanting to do. Um, transactions without being uh, followed by um, people who are kind of conspiracy theorists who who don't believe in government uh, holding keys to money and and all sorts of other people and it has just you know ballooned but what has what has helped it balloon that uh, it increased in value that much well initially there was a lot of skepticism because it's it's a cryptocurrency so there is no actual uh, paper. There is no actual tangible thing you can touch, and and there is always a question of scarcity. So, can anyone print more of these things? That's one question. Can anyone steal these? That's another question. And uh, I think Bitcoin has demonstrated that it has fairly good security built into it. And and uh, if you start kind of looking into it, you realize there is a finite number of these that can be created. Um, actually, they're created all the time. They're mined, and so they're mining operations that, that mine these these bitcoins. So I'm going to ask some basic questions today because this is for uh, for unless those someone who has dealt in bitcoins, I, I have the sense that a lot of other people don't quite understand how it works because, as you just uh, suggested, uh, it's not like a hard currency like a coin that you can hold in your hand or anything like that. This is something that is dealt with um, online. It is virtual currency. So. Uh, let's talk about what, what what's the best way to describe what a Bitcoin is. Uh, Bitcoin is an asset, and this asset can be used as an alternative to money. 
as many assets can be. I mean, if you think about money, the, the, the most basic question, like what is money? What do we need money for? So money enables us to conduct transactions easier than we would have to do without money. So it, it gets around double coin signs and so on. So for me to exchange with you, I don't need to have a thing you want and you don't need to have the thing I want. We can just use money as a vehicle for transactions. So um, many things can serve and have served as money through history. And there have been you know, gold coins and there have been silver coins and there have been seashells and all sort of things. Um, as long as it's genuinely acceptable, as long as it's somewhat scarce, you also would like it to be like easily divisible and uh, you don't want it to perish. Uh, so, But historically, the keys to money, the keys to uh, have been acquired by the state. So the state owns the printing press and our money is fiat money, so the cash you and I have in our pocket there is nothing behind it other than our faith and and the legal environment that sort of uh, pushes us towards using it. And some people are not comfortable with this idea, and, and they realize there is no, you know, fiat money has no tangible value behind it, and the state has the printing press. So a lot of initial drive behind Bitcoin was this paranoia that, well, the state is just, just going to keep printing money, and they're going to devalue the currency, and then it's gonna, uh, our assets are going to be eaten up by by uh, lack of scarcity. So people wanted to, an alternative, and um, that's some of the drive for uh, for search for this Bitcoin and, and the reason behind creation of uh, Bitcoin. Another is transactions. So you want transactions to be done cheaply and easily, and it's neither in today's world. So if you want to transfer money to Latvia, and if it's a significant amount of money, there's a lot of questions you have to answer to all sorts of people. And you need to involve banks and you need to involve fees. So Bitcoin takes that away from the government domain and from the banking domain. So you become your own bank. The way it works is everyone has a ledger. So there are these ledgers and they're public. You can see who has what, except you don't know who the people are. So it's anonymous. You can see all the ledgers in the world of the Bitcoin. And you can see all the you know balances and transfers, but but you don't know who the entities are. And uh, what enables this to work is is because it's public, because it's open, and because it's transparent. And so the faith and and kind of acceptance of it grown over the years, and now we're kind of more, I guess, uh, at ease with the idea of cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. And bitcoins aren't the only cryptocurrencies out there. No, I mean, but it's the main vehicle. Yeah, there are others as, as well, correct? Yeah, well, many of the others are scams. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, really? Yeah. yeah. It, well, see, I can see how that would happen because what you know, the, the history you, you just uh, described, uh, yes, you're right that uh, people have used different currencies over uh, all time. It used to be that we bartered. Uh, yeah. You know, I'll trade yeah. you uh, a chicken for, you know, whatever, this, right. this wagon or whatever. Uh, and even into uh, more modern times, uh, and as, as uh, you know, I guess even 150 years ago during the Civil War, you had banks that were printing their own money. Yeah, private um, money. Yep. Private money. So it's it's still fairly recent when you think about it that uh, the government has issued issued yeah. currency. Yeah. But what's to stop someone from just saying, you know what, I don't like the idea of government and being involved in my currency, so I'm going to start my own. Well, the issue with what what makes Bitcoin different is this. So anyone can have private money. You and I can print money tomorrow, and, and we can try to convince people to use this money and to accept it as a form of payment for something. But Bitcoin is different because the creators of Bitcoin cannot print it. The Bitcoin is created by solving fairly complex mathematical problem, and the complexity grows. So initially, to mine Bitcoins, to get Bitcoins, you solve these problems, and you get as a reward a Bitcoin. So it's it cannot be simply printed by their creator. There is a computational cost and there is an actual like electricity and equipment cost. So if modern Bitcoin mining operations consume enormous amounts of power. There are a lot of computer chips specifically designed to solve this mathematical problem. So it's not as though somebody can just print more and more more of it, which is that's the innovative part about Bitcoin. It's open, it's just it's transparent, and it cannot be suddenly, like the money supply cannot be suddenly inflated in any possible way. 
that we know of. But but who oversees this? Uh, no one. So that's 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 an interesting point. So there is this uh, algorithm that verifies that your solution to the mathematical problem is correct. Anyone can can verify this. Anyone can plug in these solutions and see this works. Now most people buying and selling bitcoins are not privy to any of this stuff. They don't do the math. They don't mind the bitcoin. They don't know what functions are there for this. So all they know is that there is this asset that it has value, and you know the value changes based on the you know, market. So if today I wanted to uh, obtain a Bitcoin, now there are, I understand there are several ways to do that, yeah. but to solve this mathematical problem is a way that I could obtain a Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, you can buy um, specially designed equipment. So you can buy specially designed uh, machines. In the early days, you could uh, mine Bitcoin on a personal computer because the solutions were simpler and faster. Now um, it, it will basically require like industrial size computing and, and special design chips that, that do these calculations. I, you know, one of the things I had in mind when I was re- reading this week about the value of Bitcoins increasing by so much and that it is, uh, it has become uh, an investment for many people. And we'll talk more about that. But, you know, when I think about uh, a lot of this as investments, I think of gold. Think of silver. Yeah. Think of things that uh, that people can invest in. Is it a good good comparison between uh, gold and Bitcoin? I mean, one of the big differences, obviously, is that gold you can hold in your hand, where right. Bitcoin right. you can't. Well, uh, it has been uh, called gold 2.0 in a way, and and uh, there is some comparison, in the sense that it's uh, finite, it's scarce, and it's deemed valuable. But you cannot hold it in your hand. Uh, you do not have other uses. You cannot make jewelry out of it. Even if you think about gold, that's sort of arbitrary, right? Why do we use gold for for jewelry and, and expensive stuff? In the initial stages, of course, the noble metals were limited. But now we have many compounds we could use for this. But yet we're still stuck in this kind of... Um, gold seems to be. I mean, you think about gold standards and right. stuff like that. Right. So I was waiting for you to say that. Yeah. It's everywhere, Our our idea of the value of gold. We need not to be stuck in this universe. We could use uh, Bitcoin or whatever else. But uh, you, 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 so you do feel that there is a good comparison then? Um, in terms of an asset, scarce and, and valued asset, there is. In terms of alternative uses, probably there isn't. Mm-hmm. Our guest today is Dr. Dmitry Khrushchevsky, who is uh, an assistant uh, professor of economics at Elizabethtown College. We're talking about the Bitcoin that uh, is worth right now one Bitcoin, almost $10,000. It may pass the $10,000 mark today, where it was worth uh, just three-thousandth of a dollar. Excuse me, I thought I said a penny. Three-thousandth of a dollar. Uh, just a few years ago. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. We will take your phone calls in just a moment. Uh, because there often are not, well, often, almost always, not names attached to this that uh, people can stay anonymous, uh, there have been a lot of uh, criminals. It's been used in a lot oh, yeah. of criminal activity. Um What's to stop that? I mean, can it uh, be actually been, be traced when there is a transaction using Bitcoins? Well, yeah, it's a very attractive uh, avenue for transfer money without oversight. Uh, and uh, the, the issue is that you see the transactions, you see the transfers, but you don't see the entities that these, these accounts uh, belong to. And, and there is no currently, to my knowledge, there is no... No way the law enforcement or the government or, or, or even the taxing agencies have no way of knowing who is who, essentially. So it's it's one of the driving forces behind uh, Bitcoin because it's it's really in the hands of the ledger holders and there is no oversight over the network or the processes of the transfers. I want to talk more about that in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. 
Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com slash spine. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today is Dr. Dmitry Krzyzewski, Assistant Professor of Economics at Elizabethtown College. We're talking about uh, crypto coins, Bitcoin in particular, that uh, this week, in fact, I'm curious to see what its value is going to be today. Yesterday, it ended at over $9,900 per coin, and it's been going up uh, since 2010 when it was worth very little. And uh, we're going to talk about actually how you invest in uh, Bitcoin what you do to actually make that $10,000 if you want to want to sell it, uh, that kind of thing. But we're taking your phone calls, your questions. Uh, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who have questions about virtual or crypto coins. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, one 800 Seven two nine seven five three two. Let's go to Heather in Linglestown. Heather, you're on the air. Hi, I have a real problem with something that is used to hold other people hostage. Um, my computer was hacked, and the first thing that was on there was, if you want your information, you send us twenty five thousand bitcoins. And you know, if I put my money in the bank, it's insured. If I put my money in Bitcoin, it's not insured. I don't think any reasonable person, especially huge corporations or investors, should be investing their money in something that, you know, basically the bad guys are using to get rich off of. You know, if a cop goes and busts a drug dealer, they get to confiscate that money, confiscate the car. You can't bust these bad guys out here who are hacking and doing all these bad things to computers all across the world and nothing happened. That's my comment. Heather, well, let me ask real quick. What, what, what did you do when uh, uh, you were hacked that way and they wanted Bitcoin? I will never pay anybody money ever to basically hold me hostage. So I got a new computer. Wow. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, as you can hear, Dr. Krzyzewski, uh, some bitterness there. And uh, she does not see Bitcoin as a, as a good thing. And actually, if you read the news stories about uh, some of the high-profile cases where corporations have been hacked, a lot of times, those who have done the hacking are asking for Bitcoin rather than cash, rather than... I mean, it, it, just as you said, it, it is hard to trace. It, this would seem to be a nightmare for law enforcement. Well, it, it probably is to some degree. And, you know, one of the reasons it is so valuable today, it's, it's because it, it has a purpose, it because it has a use. We Initially, Bitcoin was uh, offered as a peer-to-peer cash transfer system, which is basically what's been described when they wanted uh, the, the ransom for the for the, the ransomware or, or, or virus, whatever. Uh, and um, for a very long time, community was waiting to see what the governments around the world would do, because the governments generally don't like to, to see things in these kind of parallel universes where the you know, IRS has no taps on these. Um, law enforcement has no taps on this, FBI, terrorist activities, all sort of things. But because Bitcoin has been generally very niche and, and a small thing until very recently, it's, it's been basically allowed to, to exist without any kind of intervention and oversight. And partially the value has ballooned because people realized it, it's, it can serve so many purposes in, in terms of uh, transferring money cheaply, costlessly, and more, most importantly, anonymous. You mentioned the IRS. I'm curious. If I have a Bitcoin that's worth $10,000 and I sell that Bitcoin, yep. uh, is that money that is uh, due the IRS? <laughs> well, technically, IRS would, would say any time you sell an asset right. and okay. you have that's, made that's capital. That's the easy answer, yeah. But, right. But uh, if I'm in possession of something that's worth that much. Yeah, so big investors, big investment houses that do, do own a lot of Bitcoins do sell them and, and uh, you know, they're a lot of times pay 
what what's due to the IRS. But but it's it's because they they open their books and because they show it and because they have an office and these these transactions are recorded elsewhere. If you from your phone from your app uh, buy Bitcoin at however many thirty cents, and I think it passed eleven thousand already today, you oh, sell it. Oh, it is okay. Yeah, and you sell it, then there is no. The burden is on you to report to the IRS that you have made these enormous you know, capital gains. Well, you just brought something up. The, one of the basic questions, okay, if I have a Bitcoin as an investment, and you just said it's past $11,000, one Bitcoin today, yep. how do I p- get that $11,000? Yeah, usually when you set up your account, so you can get an app uh, that will enable you to trade and transfer Bitcoin. And, and uh, much like your PayPal account or some other online account, you will you will have to connect it to some sort of funding source, a credit card or a bank, to fund your initial purchases of these of these bitcoins. And usually, when you sell it, so the funds can be transferred to to your preferred you know institutions. Usually, your bank tied to your account, so you just the, the money will go back to your bank. Are banks, uh, financial institutions, involved in bitcoins at all? Oh yes, yes. Banks see it as a as uh, banks have many purposes. Originally, banks are are simply uh, lending institutions right they 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 make loans they create money which again is one of the reasons why people like bitcoins because in our fractional reserve system the scholar said she she has money in the bank and it's protected in fact her money is not in the bank your money is on loan somewhere else so if we all show up to the banks and ask for our money it's not there and it's known that it's not there and uh, but banks provide many services some of which is providing investment choices for their customers and they have seen the attractiveness of selling bitcoins, and they have been selling bitcoins on on behalf of their customers as an institutional investors themselves too, in some cases. But as the caller also mentioned, it, it isn't short. I mean, some you, of it is, yeah. Uh, FDIC and you know your checking accounts, right. yeah, but not right. all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, t- a few emails here. Sarah asked, "My daughter was given some bitcoins six years ago, and she's lost the information she needs to access it. Is there any way to recover it?" Yeah, recovering Bitcoin is difficult. That's actually if your if your digital wallet gets compromised and someone has access to your account, um, there is no way, there is no recourse. Like if if your bank uh, account gets hacked, you're protected. But if your Bitcoin account um, is is compromised, it's there is no recovery mechanism. I'm I'm guessing you're gonna have to. I don't know if there is a way to recover. You know your your credentials because your account, the anonym, animosity means there is no name, so it's 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 just a bunch of numbers. Mm-hmm. We have another email. Christopher asks, "I was wondering what you think about Bitcoin's main competitor, Ethereum. Is it the same thing, or is it vastly different?" It's very similar. Yeah. So the the cryptocurrencies that are not a scam are essentially very similar to Bitcoin. They're they're they're. Uh, can be earned by mining operation. They are a, a mathematical function that could be solved, and, and there is a usually a finite horizon. So the the number of these things floating around is fixed somewhere at some point. Like Bitcoins, I think 2040 or so, there will be no more new Bitcoins created. Just got an update. Uh, Bitcoin is currently valued at $11,353.52 in U.S. dollars. Yep. So it has gone up by over $1,000 just in uh, the last, well, more than that, of, um, you know, just in the last 24 hours. Let's take a phone call from Heath. Heath, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Yeah, um, I was just referring to the secretary there that, um Bank money is not a safe place for your money these days in our, uh, let's just say, advanced computerized systems. Um, I feel much safer with my money in Bitcoin than I do in the local bank. Why why do you say that? Um, Just because of the fact that it is uh, kind of mimicking the state of the U.S. dollar, and um, I don't see any difference in it, to be honest with you. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Is he right? 
Well, a lot of drive behind Bitcoin, especially initially, were people uh, mistrusting the banking system, mistrusting the government uh, with, with the printing press, mistrusting the fiat currency in general. So two things that people usually have a problem with is fiat currency. There's nothing behind these dollars that you and I have. It's just paper. And the other one is fractional reserve banking. So the banks actually don't have your money, and, and they've made loans, and they've made loans on every dollar you and I deposit, there are, there are $9 in loans going out there. So our money isn't, there is no money. Um, but the system has worked since, you know, Middle Ages and the goldsmiths. And and the U.S. dollar is, is the most desired currency in the world. It's probably the most stable as well. But uh, some people still would like to have an alternative and have faith in other alternative more. And it used to be gold that, that people bought gold and silver to, to hedge against anything that may happen to the be the banking system of the U.S. Uh, government system. Now there is yet another alternative, Bitcoin. Randy is in Mechanicsburg. Randy, you're on the air. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Uh, Scott, I, I, I don't know a lot about Bitcoin, but uh, I was provided some information regarding the insurance that banks provide. And uh, there are limitations beyond the amount of uh, coverage that you would have with an individual yeah. bank. And those limitations are that uh, the uh, money uh, may not be required to be repaid for up to 99 years. And in addition to that, there are no rights of inheritance. So the limitations uh, potentially, uh, you know, since most of us aren't going to live beyond that, uh, aren't really... Uh, legitimate in the sense that uh, you have full rights to uh, compensation and immediate compensation. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for your call. What about that? Well, I just want to put a plug in for FDIC. You know, there is a lot of um, stuff and mistrust, and you know, in this country specifically, we we don't we have this thing for not trusting the government or the bank. Uh, but FDIC has worked and functioned very well, and, and I, I have never heard about this 99 years thing. It, it may be somewhere written somewhere. But a good example is the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. Many banks have gone belly up, and FDIC kicked in and, and very smoothly. Like, for example, if you were um, a customer of Washington Mutual and you logged into your bank online and the bank was uh, has gone belly up, the FDIC website would come up and they would ask you, where, how would you like your money? Where do you want to transfer it? So in, in recent history, since FDIC has been around, we do not have a lot of people not getting their money. What limitations do exist is on various accounts that are not checking and saving, which is not what most people uh, have their money in. So your investment vehicles that may be deposited in your bank, like money market mutual funds accounts, uh, those are not protected under, under the FDIC. But in terms of your checking account and your and your saving account, um, there is a really, really, really big chance that your money is all right and you will get it back should anything happen to it or to the bank or whatever, uh, unlike some Let's go to Leon in Lancaster. Leon, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, very interesting. I really suggest that you do a number of these into the future. Uh, I, I want to bring up a couple things. I guess the uh, the Bitcoin itself is, is you know, a currency concept, but underlying that is a thing called the blockchain technology. Yeah. And that's more, in, in the end, that's going to be one of the biggest um, things, I think, into the future. I mean, all the banks, indeed, all the big banks are, are developing this for uh, what would be replacement of the ACH and the SWIFT technology, which does transfers now. But in addition, the, with the peer-to-peer uh, capability businesses will be doing peer-to-peer transactions using the underlying technology, which is known as blockchain. And I want to make a plug for something. I'm a sort of a lifelong learner, and I use a different number of different platforms. One of which is a platform called edX. edX has a blockchain for business free course, the introduction to the hyperledger technology. You can just go online and look at edX, and you can find it. But essentially, it's it's by the Linux Foundation, which I'm sure your guest knows what that is, who that is. But the underlying blockchain is probably more important than this Bitcoin bonanza right now because there are other uh, providers, such as Ethereum, which has much better underlying blockchain, um, which will probably surpass in use because they have smart contracts, 
Well, Bitcoin just happens to be this peer-to-peer, um, you know, buying and selling of Bitcoins. It, it's not really, it doesn't, the underlying technology for bo- uh, blockchain or for the Bitcoin doesn't have this expansion into another uh, another dimension, which is the, uh, the technology. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Okay. I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but uh, uh, I have to admit, I don't quite understand what he was talking about with the blockchain technology. Yeah, the the premise, the the whole foundation of of Bitcoin is blockchain technology, which is essentially make it uh, this this idea what I was talking about, the making uh, it computationally cheaper, uh, transparent, and easier to to keep these open ledgers everywhere, to keep these transfers, to verify things. Again, I'm not a you know computer tech expert; I'm an economist, but this this blockchain technology seems to be a cheap alternative and a better alternative to, to SWIFT, which is our current financial processing um, system. It, it may be adopted by banks in the future. I don't know. But I, I think Bitcoin as an investment uh, vehicle, as a potential maybe uh, asset bubble, is a bit of a different animal uh, beyond the technological foundation of it. So let's talk about uh, Bitcoin as an investment. Uh, you know, obviously, when something has increased in value, I mean, just overnight, by more than $1,000, we may have people who are running out today who are trying to invest in, 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 in Bitcoin. Is there any potential that this is a bubble? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> every every asset craze is potentially a bubble. And there is, you know, there are many segments to this demand uh, that is driving the price. Some of this is uh, criminal activity. Some of it is uh, anti-government paranoia. Some of this is uh, cheap and efficient transactions. Some of it's just, you know, I want to be anonymous. And then there is a speculative component, and speculative component is getting larger. You you wouldn't think that, you know, in the past, I don't know, three years, the the criminal activity has ballooned, you know, tenfold, or or that the the anti-government paranoia, you know, you know. I used to know one guy that's that was kind of his thing, and now you know nine. I don't think that's that's the case. So there is probably more of a speculative component today than there has been in the, in the past. We just recently there was a news story about uh, an ATM in Harrisburg, a Bitcoin ATM. Now I keep wondering, you know, since we don't have an. an, an Again, I'm picturing a traditional ATM where you put your card in, money comes out, cash comes out. What is a Bitcoin ATM, and how would that work? It, it's a weird thing. I don't see need for Bitcoin ATM. Essentially, a smartphone is the ATM. The, the, the whole premise of Bitcoin that is um, that is techy, that is in in the you know in this virtual universe, and you have access to it from whatever any computer you may have. ATM seems like a very kind of a, 19th century uh, component added to to Bitcoin. I, I'm I'm not sure if you go and, and and I guess the idea is you can swipe your credit card and buy some Bitcoin and now you own some. But you don't need to go to the ATM to do this. The whole premise of Bitcoin, you 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 can do this right now from your phone. But if I go and swipe today, I go and swipe my card, and we'll, we'll just use that premise. Right. Uh, I go and swipe a card today, and I'm buying one Bitcoin. Am I paying $11,353 for it? Yeah, but, well, it's divisible. Many times people don't buy one Bitcoin. They, you know, buy $500 worth of Bitcoin, okay. so they buy a fraction of it. Okay, so in a way, you can make a you can make a comparison analogy with other stocks, other investments. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, let's take a call from John in Lickdale. John, you're on the air. Uh, hello, uh, thanks for taking my call. Yes, welcome. Uh, some years ago, when Bitcoin was just getting started, um, I was kind of intrigued with this whole blockchain uh, idea, and so I uh, I invested uh, five hundred dollars, uh, but I made use of uh, Mount Gox, which was an early um, purveyor of the bitcoins. And Mt. Gox uh, had very bad technology and went belly up. Um, the, and so I've been intrigued, though. Uh, the, the whole technology is supposed to work because every transaction can be tracked. If every transaction can be tracked, why is it anonymous? Why can't I find out where my $500 uh, investment has gone to? 
Well, you can track it to the account it went to, but you don't know who the account holder is. So this is like the old Swiss accounts that, for example, Nazi Germany had. They're the bank, the banks have the accounts. The numbers are there. The money is there, but there is there is no no way for the outsider to determine who these accounts belong to. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, go ahead. All right. Well, thank you very much for your call. We're almost out of time, and uh, I want to thank you very much for your for being with us today because uh, this has been an education, and I'm sure that uh, with the value of the Bitcoin increasing the way it is, that there will be many more people paying attention to this. Uh, so what do you see the future here? I mean, one of the things that uh, we hear so often today is that we are in a global economy. You mentioned that the U.S. dollar is, uh, you know, what is most desired. But we hear about euros and uh, uh, yen and 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 other forms of of currency across the world. Is there the possibility that this will be? I mean, it's already accepted worldwide, it seems, but that this will become more popular form uh, a more popular form of currency worldwide. Well, it it might in some ways, but also you have. You have to remember that Bitcoin value. You, you, we see you and I see the value of it going up and through the roof. Normal currencies don't do that. Mm-hmm. This is a sign of something that's not stable. So let's say you have some Bitcoin in your pocket, and you want to use it for transactions to pay me. In fact, today you may be tempted to say, "Well, wait a minute. No, I would rather pay you in euros or dollars, because this thing, as an asset, is earning." tremendous returns for me, I'm not going to use it for, for transactions. Should it stabilize and, and kind of hold value for for uh, some considerable amount of time, then maybe it, it will be an attractive vehicle for transaction because in many cases, transaction, transaction costs are low. So if you're buying light bulbs, a million light bulbs from China, it may be cheaper to conduct business with, with, um, with Bitcoin. Having said that, I don't see in the near future you and I getting pay, paid in Bitcoin. I think for most people, this is um, historically and, and just the, the vast amount of dollar transaction in our economy will, 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 will keep being the norm. Now, um, the governments at some point will have to uh, wonder if, uh, for example, the United States had enjoyed the very advantageous positions that most transactions in the world have been in the U.S. dollar since about 1970s or post-war. Half of our U.S. dollars that are printed are somewhere else in the world. People hold them as assets. Should this thing become more attractive than U.S. dollars, then some of these paper dollars will be coming back. And you got to remember, when they went abroad, we got stuff for them because, you know, they got paper, we got stuff. And if they're coming back, it's going to be the other way around. So uh, maybe in some distant future we'll see you know, more of this, but I don't see it in the, in the near term. Dr. Dmitry Krzyzewski is Assistant Professor of Economics at Elizabethtown College. Dr. Krzyzewski, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks. It's a pleasure. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Fewer than 250 of 2 million direct support professionals who work with intellectually and developmentally disabled Americans have been trained to receive credentialing. It's a career that also doesn't pay much and has a high turnover. Penmar Human Services is trying to change that by offering a career ladder program to those looking to become DSPs. Penmar's Maryland Chief Operating Officer, Laura Tiemann, discusses the employment crisis with us. Ms. Tiemann, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, before we get into credentialing and training and what uh, Penmar is offering in those areas, uh, let's talk a little bit about you know, what kind of numbers we are looking at as a nation when it comes to uh, people who, uh, you know, have an intellectual or developmental uh, disability and the people who are working. What, what kind of numbers are we talking about? We're talking about millions of people across the country, and the numbers keep growing and growing, and the need for direct support professionals keeps growing and growing. Um, a study from phinational.org states that Um, Personal care aides would increase 
over 71 percent from 2010 to 2020, and all direct care workers in general would increase by 48 percent. That is a huge need that is out there, and we need to figure out creative solutions to help make sure we have great employees who can provide this important care. Why the increase? I mean, the, the, those estimates, I mean, when you're talking to 71 percent, that's substantial. Why, why such a, a, an increase in the need? Well, I think um, just as the population grows um, and as the shift in services changes, there's there's many more people that are being born um, with, with intellectual disabilities um, that need supports. You know, in the past, a lot of people have chosen, um, have made different options um, regarding that. Um, and a lot of it, people were put in institutions where the ratios for staffing were so high that you didn't need as many employees to support them. As the field has grown and evolved and, and become more educated, and we've made the shift from facility-based services to ensuring that individuals with disabilities are included in the community and receive normal lives, just like you and I, that increases the staffing ratio needs for the individuals supported and therefore increases the needs of staff. I think, you know, something that you just hit on, uh, you know, can't be understated is that uh, we as a society uh, deal with this today much differently than than what we used to, as as, as you suggested. Uh, you know, when someone was born with an intellectual or developmental uh, disability in the past, and very really not that long ago, that they would be institutionalized. Where today, it's uh, understood that uh, most people can function in home and uh, even on their own in some cases. Yes, absolutely. And it's such an important shift, and I am so thankful to be able to be a part of that shift. Um, The field has really evolved, and we believe very strongly here at Penmar that every individual deserves every opportunity just like you and I do, and that it's our mission to ensure that they're um, integrated in the community to the fullest extent possible, that they have jobs, and that they are active, engaged citizens. So let's get back to the employment situation. Uh, When I first learned of this, direct support professionals, uh, later on in the the sentence describing uh, what some of the issues are, I saw the the words employment crisis. Is there a crisis, an employment crisis, amongst direct support professionals? Yes, it's, it's an employment crisis, and more importantly, it's a quality crisis. So you know, think of being a person who needs somebody to support you 24-7 in your life and think about them getting to know you and understand all your medical conditions and, and everything that is necessary to support you properly. And then that person changing every three to six months to a year, you get to know them, you build a relationship and a bond, and then they leave for a better paying job, and then you have to start that cycle all over again. It really is, is not fair to the individuals we support. And creating that consistent, stable support is so important. Um, and finding employees who um, can do this job is hard, and I, I think sometimes it gets undervalued. Um, it truly is a profession. Our staff provide medical supports, behavioral supports, job supports. They help advocate for the individuals. It is a very complex and dynamic role. And so when you're paying low wages, it makes it really hard to find good employees and to retain them into that job and keep that consistent, stable, um, important support that those individuals deserve. You mentioned that uh, these these jobs are undervalued. Uh, the average uh, salary, I understand, is uh, just over uh, $10 an hour. So with low pay comes a high turnover. And, uh, you know, we, we know of industries where there was a high turnover because of low uh, wages. But just as you d- described, it may be important, even more important, it is more important, that uh, it, it's, it's seen on an everyday basis where a high turnover has uh, an impact on the people that uh, that uh, are, you know, that the, the professional is, is working with. All right. So why do we as a society undervalue these jobs? Why do they pay so little? Well, I think, unfortunately, what I understand is the Department of Labor doesn't even recognize the direct support professional job as its own category. It's currently lodged in as a personal care aid um, or a nurse aid or a home health aid. And the role is really different than that. And I think as the field has evolved, I don't know that government has come up to speed and been educated to understand the real change in what our staff are being asked to do and what their role really is. And I think it's our job as an organization to advocate for them 
um, and help change the view of, of our direct support professionals. And in my introduction, I mentioned a statistic that uh, when you look at these numbers, I mean, this is shocking. Fewer than 250, that's 250 of 2 million direct support professionals who work with intellectually and uh, developmentally disabled Americans who have been trained to receive credentialing. Okay, now there are a couple verbs in that, but give us a sense of what that actually means. Yeah, it, it means that as a profession and as a system, we have not gone to the full extent to ensure that our employees are accredited and trained with the best practices in the field and to verify that they have the skills to do the job. Currently, most providers um, do basic training, first aid, CPR, medication administration, those kind of things. But the additional level of competence that's required for the change in the role to a community-based service, there isn't a whole lot of training and support out there for that. And so because the program is expensive and it takes a lot of time and dedication, a lot of providers believe in it, but they just don't have the resources to be able to implement it. We've been fortunate here at PEMAR to um, be able to start up the Michael James Pitts uh, Endowment, which has really helped us launch this here. Um, and we are, we are thankful uh, to be able to do that. And our goal is to be able to demonstrate how this career letter program can impact an organization increase retention, to improve quality of services, and be able to share that nationally to help build the momentum to move this forward. If someone is credentialed as a direct support professional, are they more likely to make more money, or are they more likely to stay in that job? Well, here at Penmar, we've incentivized it. Um, so we have a bonus structure and an increased compensation plan and additional um, opportunities for advancement here within the organization that we've created to financially compensate it. So that's how we intend on retaining our employees here at the organization. Unfortunately, across the country, because there's only 250, um, there really hasn't been a movement to increase wages. We are trying to work with the Developmental Disabilities Administration in Maryland to help them recognize this and help pay different rates for when staff are truly certified, and we're hoping to make some progress there. What goes into being credentialed? There's a lot that goes into it. Um, To become a DSP-1, you have to complete 100 additional hours of accredited training. Then you have to create four work samples and reflections. It's kind of putting together a portfolio of demonstrating your competence in four of the 15 competency areas. Um, And that's really a wonderful aspect of this. So it's not like you just go to college, you learn something, you take tests. Um, You actually do all of that, but then they get to apply it to their work and make a difference in somebody's life. And then they present that to the National Alliance for Direct Support Professionals for them to review and approve. Mm. It's really a fantastic program that we're very proud to be a part of. We have a few minutes left. If you have a question or comment, we're speaking with uh, Penmar's uh, Maryland Chief Operating Officer, Laura Tiemann, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You know, we've been talking about Penmar, uh, Penmar Human Services that uh, works in both Maryland and Pennsylvania. Uh, Describe uh, what you, maybe we should describe what exactly Penmar does. Absolutely. So Penmar provides support services to individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities in northern Baltimore County, Carroll County, Harford County, and Southern York County in Pennsylvania. Um, we provide residential services, so individuals live on their in a home. Uh, between one and four individuals live together in a home, and we support them in that environment. We have um, a customized employment program where we help individuals get integrated competitive jobs in the community. Um, We have support services program where we help individuals who are living at home with their families or on their own. And um, we have a day program where we help individuals during the day um, to have a meaningful day and learn skills to be employed. 
So we provide a wide array of services here. Um, we support over 350 individuals in daily um, services, and we support over 1,000 more in our low-intensity support services program where we're able to give financial support to families um, who need help with um, adaptive equipment or personal needs or respite program or those kind of things. You know, and I'm jumping around on you, uh, uh, Ms. Teeman, but a question that, that just popped in my mind, you, you said that this is hard work, and I absolutely believe that, that it is very hard work. Um, but who are the kind of people who would be good at this, the kind of people who can come to this profession and say, you know, I can make a real difference? I completely appreciate that question. There are, are so many people out there um, if you are a caring person who wants to make a difference in somebody's life and you believe in the value of each person and willing to work hard and have a strong work ethic, you can do this job. And so many times I talk to people and they say, oh, i got to go to work t- tomorrow. I hate my job. I'm miserable. They come home and they're miserable. This is truly a job where you can feel good every day that you go to work, and you can leave not only giving something to the individuals that you're supporting, but we hear from our staff that they actually get so much more back in return. So I encourage anyone who um, is not happy with their job or looking for a new career to give it, give it a chance and, and give it a try. How do they do that? And we only have about 30 seconds left. How, how do they do that? Someone listening to this says, you know what, I, I think I do fit that uh, description. How can I do it? www.penmar.org. Um, there's a link there to apply uh, at Penmar Human Services. And if not, just Google your local DD provider, and I'm sure they'll have a link as well. And, you know, you t- also touched, and I have to, again, do this kind of quickly, you touched on a, the grant that uh, uh, that was given to Penmar. Uh, and tell us how that grant is being used for training. Absolutely. So that grant has been pivotable. pivotable. Um, it helped pay for our Relias training platform, um, which is quite expensive, but that's how we provide the accreditive trainings. It also provides the extra pay that we provide the staff for those trainings, um, as well as the um, fees for their certification. Laura Tiemann is uh, Penmar Human Services, Maryland Chief Operating Officer. Ms. Tiemann, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. It was an honor. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, you probably heard Matt Lauer of uh, the Today Show, host of, co-host of the Today Show, was fired by NBC Today, the latest involved in uh, sexual, uh, you know, he was accused of, uh, I guess, harassing uh, an NBC employee. We'll be talking with Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape about this tomorrow. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com.